Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the confirmation of a second act of treason by Republicans using back channels to influence the results of presidential elections. The first, when Kissinger and Ennis Chenault got the South Vietnamese to scuttle peace talks arranged by LBJ to end the war in Vietnam in 1968, which helped elect Nixon, and the second being the back channel of former Texas Governor Connolly to get the Iranians to hold on to the hostages to help elect Reagan and end Jimmy Carter's presidency. We will speak with an historian who originally broke the story of Ben Barnes and Governor Connolly's secret trip to the Middle East in 1980, which was the subject of a bombshell expose of the October surprise on the front page of Sunday's New York Times. Joining us is H.W. Brands, Professor and Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He has written more than a dozen biographies and histories, two of which, The First American and Traitor to His Class, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. His other books include The General vs. the President, a New York Times bestseller, Our First Civil War, The Last Campaign, and Reagan, The Life, in which he revealed for the first time what Ben Barnes had told him about the secret trip he had made to the Middle East, which Barnes has now gone public with in the New York Times because he wants to make amends to President Carter, who is now in hospice care and should know before he dies how he was undermined by Republican chicanery if not treachery. Then we'll speak with someone who was at the centre of the Iranian hostage crisis inside the Carter White House, Gary Sick, who served on the National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter and Reagan, and was the principal White House aide for Iran during the Iranian Revolution and hostage crisis. He is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Middle East Institute and the author of All Fall Down, America's Tragic Encounter with Iran, and October Surprise, America's Hostages in Iran and the Election of Ronald Reagan. We will discuss how this extraordinarily important story has been buried for 43 years and only comes out after Reagan, his campaign manager, William Casey, and Governor Connolly are all dead. However, what they did in manipulating a presidential election at the expense of American hostages held captive in Iran flies in the face of the old adage that political partisanship ends at America's shore and should result in more than an apology to Jimmy Carter. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is H.W. Brands, Professor and Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's written more than a dozen biographies and histories, two of which, the first American and traitor to his class, were finalists for a Pulitzer Prize. His other books include The General vs. the President, a New York Times bestseller, and Our First Civil War, The Last Campaign, and Reagan, The Life. Welcome to Background Briefing, H.W. Brands. Delighted to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And the New York Times broke a story on the Sunday edition front page, a four-decade secret one-man story of sabotaging Carter's re-election, otherwise known as the October Surprise. I've, over the years, have followed this story and have interviewed Gary Sick on a number of occasions and others involved in it. And you wrote about this in the Reagan book, Reagan, The Life, about the very person that's the source of Peter Baker's bombshell story at breaking the October surprise story in Sunday's New York Times. So did you really break this story before the New York Times? <laughs> well, I included the essence of the story in my 2015 biography of Reagan. So I don't know if that counts as breaking the story in the same way that a leading article in the New York Times on Sunday does. Uh, but when I read the article, I wasn't surprised because I pretty much knew everything that was reported in the article because I had written it up myself in my book on Reagan. And I should say that Peter Baker, the author of the New York Times article, did acknowledge that I had written about it. Indeed. But what did you say back then that somehow got overlooked? Well, I said pretty much what Peter Baker's article says, and I said a lot more because I was dealing with the entire campaign and William Casey, he plays just a sort of a modest role in the Baker article. Baker was focusing on Ben Barnes. And Ben Barnes has decided since President Carter appears to be on his deathbed, that this was the time to tell this story. Now, it's mad actually telling the story again, but it got less play when I told the story than it has recently. And that's fine. That's just kind of the way that goes. Well, let's then talk about Ben Barnes, and you know him, obviously, and how he fits into the kind of pantheon of Texas politics, having been the lieutenant governor, which perversely in Texas is a more powerful role than the governor, right? Yeah. So Ben Barnes was the wunderkind of Texas politics in the 1960s, and even into the early 1970s. He was lieutenant governor probably the most powerful figure in the state by the time I think he was 26. So he was a very, he's a charming individual. He's smart, well-spoken, energetic. He is somebody that you would say, this guy is going places in politics. And he did go places. He had the ear of Lyndon Johnson. He was something of a Johnson protege. He was a protege of John Connolly, governor of Texas during the 1960s. He, he had a, a knack. He is now an elder person, elder statesman himself, but especially at the time, he had a knack for uh, cultivating a good opinion of people who were powerful and were in a position to advance his career. Things got kind of derailed in the early 1970s when he was associated with a scandal. And the scandal was sufficient to cause Ben Barnes to reconsider his political future. He stepped off the track of elective politics. He's pretty much stayed out of politics in the sense of holding office himself. He has been someone whose advice and counsel 
all sorts of Democrats in particular, but some Republicans as well, have asked for, have heeded over the years because he has a very sound political sense. And he also has been active in fundraising and just doing the kind of stuff that happens behind the scenes of politics. And that's where he was when he got this call from John Conley in the summer of 1980, saying that Conley was going to go to the Middle East. He was going to take a trip to the Middle East, and he wanted to know if Ben Barnes wanted to go along. And Barnes evidently had the opportunity to do it, and so he did. And as Barnes tells the story, it was after he'd gone on the trip that he realized that there was more to this than burnishing the credentials of John Conley to be Secretary of State in a Reagan administration. And it was to convey this message to governments and other influential people in the Middle East that it would not be to the interest of a Reagan administration or the Reagan campaign for the hostages, the American hostages in Iran, to be released before the election. And so word went out to the folks, and it was presumed that this message would find its way to Iran. And the whole idea was to prevent what at the time was called an October surprise, that the release of the hostages late in the campaign would give an 11th hour boost to the Carter campaign. Carter was behind Reagan in the polls and somehow prevent Reagan from being elected. So this is the message that was conveyed. Now, Ben Barnes didn't know, to this day doesn't know, exactly how or even if definitively it made its way to Tehran. But the fact that the hostages was held, hostages were held until after the election, suggested that maybe the, the message had had an effect. It was a little bit unclear. Uh, both, so I asked Ben Barnes directly, did John Conley get the idea for this message from Bill Casey, the campaign manager and future CIA director under the Reagan administration? Did Conley do this at the request of Bill Casey? And Ben Barnes said he didn't know and didn't ask. Now, it seems to me, as an outside observer, that it would have been quite a stretch for Conley to do this on his own. Aside from being illegal, there's a law called the Logan Act that forbids private individuals to engage in negotiations where the United States is in controversy or in itself in negotiations with a foreign government. And it was designed in the 1790s to prevent exactly this sort of thing happening. So. It would be very surprising to me if John Conley would have done this on his own. Beyond this, there was a concern within the, the Casey camp in the Reagan campaign that we have to do everything we can to prevent the release of the hostages before the election. And some of it was to set a preemptive backfire. So they sort of talked about to reporters and others, beware of this October surprise because it will show how desperate the Carter administration is to get the hostages out before the election. And they probably will have bargained away something very important to these rascals in Iran who have seized our people. So the trip then with Governor Connolly of Texas, former Governor Connolly of Texas and Bill Barnes, they left Houston on July the 18th of 1980 
and they went to Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel before returning to Houston on August the 11th. So they say, and they met with key figures like President Sadat of Egypt and others. Mm-hmm. So I think it's reasonable to presume that given all of those countries, with the exception of Israel, that he visited and met with top figures, that the word would have gotten through to the Iranians, if that was the purpose of the trip, which it appears to be. Yes, yes, I, I think that's a, a perfectly fair assumption. And I presume that that's what Connolly assumed was the case as well. And it's an also a perfectly good assumption that uh, he wouldn't have done this as a freelancer without having coordination with the Reagan campaign. Um, right. So Connolly was smart enough and astute enough to realize that on his face, this is illegal. He was breaking the law. And he wouldn't be breaking the law unless he had some reason to believe that there was something in it for him. And presumably, by carrying the message for the Reagan campaign, this would make him seem like Secretary of State material for a Reagan administration. And he ended up being offered the Secretary of Energy, right, which was something of an insult. Right, yeah. He thought he was beyond that by this time. Now, he had run, had he not run in the Democratic primary as well against Carter and others? Yes. So, and he lost. Right. So he had, he had presidential aspirations himself, and people in both parties thought he was presidential material. Richard Nixon took quite a shine to him and hoped that he would run for president as a Republican. Well, of course, he was also well known for having been a victim of, of Lee Harvey Oswald, right? He was shot along with oh, President yes. Kennedy. Right. Yeah. And that's really how he came to national prominence. But on the surface, though, Bill, this looks like a politician, an ambitious politician, who is sort of piqued at the fact that he didn't make it with one party. Then he throws his lot in with another, not exactly a profile in courage. Are you speaking now of Connolly? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, except that if you think that you're trying to demonstrate that you would be a good diplomat and that you have, you can handle the interests of the United States, to do this sort of thing without authorization is, would be, it seems to me, to be a very risky endeavor. Now, I should add something here. I, really have a hard time believing that William Casey was not behind this part of it. But the separate question is, was Ronald Reagan behind it? And given the fact that Casey, when he became CIA director, was notorious for engaging in things that he didn't tell Reagan or for that matter, anybody else about, it's perfectly plausible that he would have cooked this up on his own. And it's also entirely plausible that Reagan might have suspected that Casey was capable of doing such a thing and simply indicated explicitly or implicitly, just don't tell me the details. However, one of the things that I did learn in going through the Conley papers was that John Conley, while he was in the Middle East, I can't remember which city he was in at the time, he got a message, sorry, he got a telephone call from Nancy Reagan at the Reagan Ranch in California and asking him to call back. Now, there was no record that he did call back, but if the 
you, the person you think is going to be the first lady calls you and says, call back, he certainly would have called back. So it seems to me quite clear that future President Reagan, Governor Reagan then, knew that John Conley was in the Middle East, and they talked. And now I don't know if Reagan would have contributed to this message that we don't want the hostages released. I don't know. This, with Reagan, it's, it's really hard to tell that part of it. But well, but we all, we he all was, recall he was certainly that, aware that John Conley was there. Sure, but we all recall that Nancy Reagan had an outsized influence. And it would seem that since this phone call from Nancy Reagan to Connolly on July the 21st, in the middle of his trip, he left Houston on July the 18th, for Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and Israel, and then came back to Houston on August the 11th. So it's right at the beginning of the trip, in effect. It's highly suspicious. And again, Nancy Reagan was a powerful influence, was she not, on her husband? Oh, she certainly was. And I will say this, that Nancy Reagan had no secrets from Ronald Reagan. Now, William Casey might have had secrets from Ronald Reagan, but Nancy Reagan didn't have any secrets from her husband. So in terms of then the significance of this October surprise to Jimmy Carter, the New York Times article from Sunday by Peter Baker quotes uh, Gerald Rafshoon, who was uh, Carter's press secretary, saying that had this not happened, had Carter been able to get the hostages out, he would have won the election. So as an historian, Bill, what do you think of that? Is that... uh, I think that part is debatable, Mm -hmm. because I think American voters were probably more concerned with the state of the economy than they were with the hostages in Iran. But Carter really couldn't do much about the economy. He could have, if he did get the hostages released, that would have helped. But the election wasn't that close. But there's a big aspect of that condition, that supposition that Rafshun gets entirely wrong. And that is that it was the advice, if any, given by John Connolly, perhaps at the request of William Casey, that the Iranians hang on to the hostages that caused the Iranians to hang on to the hostages. In fact, what Connolly and maybe Casey were urging the Iranians not to do, that is, release the hostages, was something that the Iranians had no desire to do on their own. And that's because the Iranians, the hostage takers, were not going to deliver any kind of diplomatic victory, let alone a political victory, to Jimmy Carter. The reason the hostages were taken was that the hostage takers suspected that Jimmy Carter was plotting to reinstate the Shah of Iran, as had been done by Dwight Eisenhower 25 years earlier. And so the Iranians were going to hold on to the hostages until Reagan got out of office, excuse me, until Carter got out of office. And then they, they had pretty much decided, and Gary Sick talks about this, but they pretty much decided that the hostages had done all the good they could for the causes that they were trying to use the hostages for. And the hostages were to some degree a football between competing factions within Tehran. But anyway, the hostages had become a dead weight in Iranian politics. And, though the, and so the hostage takers basically wanted to get rid of the hostages. But they weren't going to do it as long as Carter was in office. 
because it would give Carter this victory. And if it gave if it meant Carter was going to be president for another four years, that would have been a disaster. And so this really inverts the the story that the Reagan folks told that, yes, the hostages were released 20 minutes after Reagan swore his oath of office on January 20th, 1981, because the Iranians feared what Ronald Reagan, the stern new leader, would do to Iran. No, that wasn't it at all. They they liked Ronald Reagan. They preferred Reagan to Carter, which is why they held on to the hostages, regardless of anything that John Conley or William Casey had said before. They weren't going to turn over the hostages. Well, I mentioned earlier about Conley saying he's not a profile in courage. I, what I meant by that, Bill, was that he's a Democrat, right? And then he suddenly becomes a Republican. So he doesn't seem to have any party loyalty. Well, so you have to take that in the context of the changing politics of the South. So Conley was a conservative. He was his Conley's politics were very close to the politics of Richard Nixon. So they were both moderates within their party. But the fact is that Conley grew up in the South when you couldn't get anywhere as a Republican. But then things change uh, starting in the 1960s. And so by 1980, it's clear that somebody of Conley's political beliefs really is no longer going to be a Democrat. He's going to be a Republican. So there are plenty of people who did that. Phil Graham did it about the same time. Um, Rick Perry who became the longest-serving governor in Texas history, he did the same thing. So there were a lot of party switches right about that time. And nobody in Texas held it against them. It was just the, the makeup of the parties was changing. So it wasn't uh, really a question of party loyalty. At least it wasn't seen that way among Connolly's Texas constituents, how it might have been perceived in Massachusetts. Who knew? Sure. Well... When LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act in 65, he apparently said uh, that this means we're going to lose the South, and we had Nixon's Southern strategy, which is now, you know, largely the Republican Party has become a party of the South, has it not? Yeah. So, and the background to that was the South was Democratic from Reconstruction until the 1960s as a legacy issue. It was a question of history, not a question of political beliefs. So many, perhaps most Southerners, and here we're speaking of white Southerners, they're the only ones who are really politically active. Um, they were more conservative than the country as a whole. And they were, they were more conservative than many Midwest Republicans or Northeast Republicans. And so there was this odd juxtaposition of history with philosophy within the party and what the Democrats embrace of civil rights under Lyndon Johnson did was effectively to give these Southern conservatives who were legacy Democrats permission to become Republicans, which by this time was a much more comfortable place for them to be. And the transition took, well, in the case of somebody like John Conley, it took about 15 years. In the case of other people, it never happened. So they remained Democrats, even though they were conservative, and they would vote for Republican candidates for president. And then younger politicians in places like Texas, they, if they were relatively conservative, they would have just started out their political careers as Republicans. So yeah, the background to all of this in terms of parties is that the parties are shifting. And somebody like 
Conley could say with a straight face that, well, the same thing that Ronald Reagan himself said, I didn't switch parties. The parties you know, switched out from under me. He was referring to California Republicans and Democrats. But Conley could have plausibly made the same case for himself and Phil Graham and Rick Perry and others in Texas, many others in Texas, actually. So back to Ben Barnes, a key figure who mm-hmm. you interviewed back for your book in 2015 or the book came out in 2015, I presume that yeah. might have been earlier. But yeah. he went on the trip with Connolly where they met with all the Middle East leaders and asked them to pass the message on to the Iranians to hold on to the hostages to help elect Reagan. They'd get a better deal mm-hmm. with the Reagan than right. by releasing the Carter. And that's the big story that's broken by the New York Times on Sunday, verifying suspicions that there was such a thing as an October surprise I mean, it's in the category of treason, isn't it, this activity? I mean, wasn't there an earlier example, Henry Kissinger uh, working with Madame Chenkacek and others to have the South Vietnamese uh, pull out of the peace talks that uh, LBJ was trying to arrange? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, at the very least, it's illegal under the Logan Act. But it constitutes treason. The U.S. Constitution has a pretty narrow definition of treason. But if anything, one would imagine that relatives and the hostages themselves would have been incensed at this because they're languishing for another six months when they could have been out in the summer of, you know, by the summer of 1980. However, however, as I suggested earlier, that simply wasn't going to happen. So this was, this was a case of the, the Reagan people, the Reagan campaign people, as I said earlier, they're urging the Iranians to do, not they're urging the Iranians not to do something the Iranians had no intention of doing anyway. So it does not speak well for the Reagan campaign. It doesn't speak particularly well for the individuals involved. But it almost certainly didn't change history. Right, but back to what happened apparently in when Nixon was running against uh, Humphrey, but prior to that it was LBJ who decided not to run ah. again. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that, there was an emissary... Yeah, but I'm saying yeah. it's it's a similar situation, isn't it, where you have a campaign. Right. It's, similar. This... it's similar, but it's it's constitutionally different in that the United States was at war at that point. And that's where the U.S. Constitution kicks in, because con- uh, treason under the Constitution is defined as waging war against the United States or aiding the enemies of the United States in, in wartime. And that was a case also where Americans were getting killed as a result of this. Now, thankfully, no hostages died as a result of their extended detention. I mean, still, if you were one of the hostages or one of their loved ones, you'd be pretty angry at this. But it is a a different order when American soldiers are actually dying in combat, in part because people are saying, let's uh, extend the war for political reasons. And deny LBJ a a diplomatic victory by a peace talk, which the emissaries from candidate Nixon being Henry Kissinger and others managed to persuade the South Vietnamese to walk out of the peace talks. So that, from what you've just told us, Bill, is treason. That part is potentially treason. Um, well, I'd leave that to the courts to decide. Right. But, I mean, the, the other thing about this, and this relates to what I was saying about the Iranians having no incentive on their own to release the hostages, there's no telling what effect that advice had on the North Vietnamese in 1968. Did they think they were going to get a better deal 
from Reagan, just um, from Nixon, just because Nixon's people were saying it. I I don't know. But that is that one is a very serious case of somebody, well, certainly undermining the U.S. government when the U.S. government was trying to end the war, and that's very serious business. Whether it rises to the level of treason, I'm not prepared to say, but it's a, a an extremely serious matter. Right, but we're talking about two strikes now for the Republican Party. One looks like treason; the other one is not necessarily treason. That's not a good record. No, and the ironic thing to me, and I've never entirely been able to figure it out, is how the Republican Party has managed to portray itself as the party of strength against America's enemies and cast the Democrats as a party of being weak with America's enemies. <laughs> when at the same time they're doing this sort of thing. Well, that's extraordinary, isn't it, in that context. So what's your expectation then? Of, I put in a call to Gary Sick. I imagine he's besieged, but what's your sense of vindication here for those that suspected uh, the October surprise, and how much traction does this have? I mean, we are, we are of course, distracted by a war in Ukraine. With the, Now you've got the Chinese president meeting with Putin, and there's a lot happening at the moment that would distract us normally from a story that, uh, what, four decades old. Yeah, in the first place, it's four decades old. All the principles are no longer with us. So that's an important aspect. There's one other thing, too, that I think contributes to the reluctance of people to pursue the October surprise. And, and I should point out that it's really preventing the October surprise story. And that is that we're talking about something that happened just six years after Watergate. And Americans were not really thrilled with the idea of going through something like that again. And here's the crucial part, that Ronald Reagan seemed like such a likable guy. And Richard Nixon, by contrast, was a nasty character, and a lot of people were happy to see him go down. But people didn't want to believe this of Ronald Reagan. And Reagan was canny enough, I think, to distance himself from all of this. And it became apparent with the Iran-Contra scandal. And the Iran-Contra scandal was a bigger deal, I think, than what we're talking about, because it was the United States government saying one thing in public, and doing something utterly the opposite in private, meanwhile breaking several laws to do so. And it became really clear that this was happening while Reagan was president. But Reagan didn't suffer for that. Oh, maybe a little bit of embarrassment. And some of it was due to the fact perhaps that Reagan was six years older and beginning to show signs of the dementia that would claim him ultimately. And so he could say, I forgot about it and do that plausibly. But still, if you want to get traction with a scandal, it helps a lot if you have the person who commits the scandal being somebody people don't like. But if it's somebody people like, then they're willing to look the other way. And I'd be very surprised if anything comes of this. So I say, you know, who are you going to go after at this point? You could blame Republicans generically, I suppose, but you know, that's water way over the dam. Well, I think with Iran-Contra, I think there was also the fact that Reagan was engaged with ending the Cold War with uh, the Russians or the Soviets. And my understanding is that you recall in the Iran-Contra hearings with Oliver North, etc., they were talking about prof notes, which were evidence, like early emails. And apparently those early emails were reconstructed. They were, they were wiped, but then they were reconstructed. And they had the record 
but they didn't pull the trigger, I think, because the very reason that combination of what you were just saying, that Reagan was popular, likable, and furthermore, he was engaged in bringing about the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which of course was a... I think, I think there's a little bit of sort of retrospective advantage in that particular interpretation, because when this story broke in 1986, it was not at all clear that the Cold War was about to end. Because Reagan had not had any real breakthroughs with Gorbachev. He had had some conversations with Gorbachev, but it wasn't, it, it's not as though people are saying, oh boy, the Cold War is about going to end. Don't spoil it. And it's worth a reminder that the Cold War didn't end for another five years. It wasn't until Reagan was two and a half years out of office. Yeah, there were certain important arms control agreements, but the Soviet Union was still intact when Reagan left office. And Reagan had said quite memorably, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down the wall. But the wall was still there. And the Soviet Union hadn't crumbled. And that (laughs) was in 87, the the first Bush administration. Mm. They say, you know, (laughs) Reagan gets all the credit, but we did all all the work. Right. And the tear down the wall speech was in, I think, in July of 87. So, but is there something to the notion that the Iran-Contra investigation, they they didn't pull the trigger. They decided to give Reagan a pass. Would you believe that? Oh, I think, they, I think they definitely gave him a pass, but I think that had as much to do with the fact that the Democrats feared they would be seen as beating up on this nice old guy uh-huh. to go after Reagan. Now, there are plenty of other people who were brought to book and went to jail for the Iran-Contra scandal. They were mostly pardoned when George H.W. Bush became president, but... There was an investigation, and a lot of people were brought to account, but nobody really wanted to go after Reagan. And I think some of it was, it became apparent, actually, after Reagan left office. And he finally was, he gave a deposition. And it was almost heartbreaking to read the deposition, because Reagan, time and time again, says, I can't remember. I don't remember. That slipped Mm -hmm. my mind. And by Mm -hmm. then, it was really clear that his memory was fading. And, you know, a lot of this in terms of what happens in politics with congressional investigations and the like, it's a matter of perception. And and can you read the American political audience? And I think that Americans were sort of quite happy for Reagan simply to ride off into the sunset. He wasn't going to run for president again, so he wouldn't be America's problem shortly. And and the very fact that he's just seemed this genial old guy you know beat right. up on granddad we can't do that right but when he uh, was engaged in this plot as much as he was engaged we've discussed how nancy reagan phoned Connolly when he was on the very trip uh, where he apparently passed the message on to the iranians to hold on to the hostages to help elect reagan and hurt carter i don't know whether you recall bill when he ran against uh, gerald ford he made the most amazing speech, Reagan. And at the time, I thought, my God, <laughs> it was at the convention, too. Uh, you know, the Republicans are electing the wrong guy. So he had to wait another four years, right? So he was still yeah. uh, he was still had his faculties uh, at the time of the October surprise. Oh, there's no question. Well, th- that's certainly true. But I would say that his gifts lay more in giving a good speech, making a good performance, than it did dealing with the details of any particular policy. And I 
certainly would not put it past William Casey to conduct this stuff all on his own and just not tell Reagan. Now, Reagan, if Casey did this, it would be partly because Reagan had given him some kind of signal. I don't need to know the details. But Reagan was never a detail man and just said, you know, deliver, deliver the goods. And, you know, one can certainly fault Reagan for that, assuming that all this transpires as we've discussed. Yeah, he's responsible for his campaign. But in terms of the mechanics of how it happened, I'd be very surprised, for example, if Reagan got on the telephone with John Connolly and says, now, remember that message you're supposed to send indirectly to Iran? That's just not the way it was done. And, and, and this is the sort of thing, you know, the so-called plausible deniability that presidents learn about. And so when the CIA under Dwight Eisenhower conspired to assassinate Rafael Trujillo and Patrice Lumumba in, in the Congo, Eisenhower never said, I want you to knock these guys off. But the message came from the White House that these people are a problem, so deal with it. And... There is that, you know, that air gap between the president and these other people, because you can always fire your campaign manager if it had happened, if this had surfaced in the time, believably. You can fire William Casey. You can't fire the candidate. You can't fire the president for this. At least that's the hope. That's the president's hope. Sure. And it goes back to Henry the Fourth, right? Will someone rid me oh. of this troublesome priest? You bet. Yeah. Right. Well, just in closing then, Bill, as an historian, how do you see the current Republican Party? Because many, I just spoke with a couple of conservative Republicans, formerly with the Heritage Foundation, who are appalled at what Tucker Carlson is doing, parroting uh, Russian talking points to help encourage the Congress and the presidential candidates on the Republican side, DeSantis and Trump, to cut funds to Ukraine, which is probably the best thing that could happen as far as Putin's concerned. So the the interview I did on yesterday, Dr. Errol Cohen said that Reagan would be turning over in his grave. Has the Republican Party simply become a far-right party? On the balance of the evidence that we've seen in the last five or six years, yeah, definitely. So the Republican Party has embraced, largely because Donald Trump has embraced, certain aspects of foreign policy, and so we're talking about that, that would have been utter anathema to Reagan. Now, the real question is whether that is the embrace of the party. Is that something that the rank and file of the party really believe? Or is it something, is the party still in, sufficiently enthralled to Donald Trump that no one wants to cross a line that potentially gets you on the wrong side of Donald Trump? There at least were, during the first couple of years of the Trump administration, a lot of folks in the foreign policy arena who considered themselves never Trumpers. And they considered themselves Republicans. These were Bush Republicans, both Bush campaigns. Um, but many of them have either retired, you know, worked, retired their way out, or have sort of come to terms with the fact that if you're going to be a player in this day and age with the Republican Party as it is, you have to at least say the right things. So assuming, let's just, if Donald Trump gets elected, then then we have another round, presumably, of Trump once of this Trump 2.0. But if somebody like Ron DeSantis should defeat Trump for the nomination, then it'll be very interesting to see how he positions himself, assuming he gets to be president, what will happen then. For most people who become president, 
they wake up on the day after the inauguration and they realize, hey, I'm president. Now I don't have to listen to the people that I listened to before. So maybe, maybe there remains within the Republican Party um, a core of people who still believe in the old Republican principles of, well, principled foreign policy, believe in free trade by and large, in American strength, in American standing for the principles of democracy and so on. That's something we're going to have to wait and see. And I, I don't know. I don't have any more insight into that. I don't think anybody else does. Well, just in closing, when you talk about principle, <laughs> there's nothing principle about both the efforts of uh, Kissinger and others to get the South Vietnamese to walk out of the peace talks. And the other subject, which is the basis of the breaking story now from the New York Times yesterday, the October surprise. So there are two incidences of uh, less than principle behavior. And I would point out that if the Democrats had been caught doing that, then the Republicans would be the first to say that this is high treason again and again. Right. Well, I thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been a very interesting conversation covering a sweep of history that now has a whole different uh, perspective, right? So. Yes, yes. Well, I enjoyed it. Very much so. And again, I've been speaking with H.W. Brands, Professor and Chair of History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's written more than a dozen biographies and histories, two of which, the first American and traitor to his class, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. And his other books include The General versus the President, a New York Times bestseller, and Our First Civil War, The Last Campaign, and Reagan, The Life. We're going to take a restation break. We're back speaking with someone who was at the center of the Iranian hostage crisis inside the Carter White House and wrote a book, October Surprise, America's Hostages in Iran and the Election of Ronald Reagan. I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood and the ink of the headline And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war There's a shadow on the faces of the... And joining us now is Gary Sick, who served on the National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter and Reagan. He was the principal White House aide for Iran during the Iranian Revolution and the Hostage Crisis, and he's now a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Middle East Institute and the author of All Fall Down, America's Tragic Encounter with Iran, and October Surprise, America's Hostages in Iran and the Election of Ronald Reagan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Sick. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Gary. And on Sunday, the New York Times dropped the bombshell that I imagine you've been waiting for for what, four decades to, yes. to justify and verify all the suspicions you had since you served on the National Security Council in the Carter administration and you were the person with that portfolio in that region and you were a witness to what happened on the, inside the White House. But now it has all been verified. So what is your response? Well, first of all, I uh, am very pleased that Peter Baker did the the uh, legwork that he did of uh, digging around. He was doing a story on on Jimmy Carter's presidency, and uh, at some point decided to uh, to interview people around 
Connolly, who uh, had, you know, Connolly being the former governor of Texas, the, the former governor of Texas, who had, you know, uh, you know, f- uh, fingers in a lot of pies during that period of time on energy and a lot of other issues, and uh, Connolly, of course, is uh, is dead, and so he interviewed Ben Barnes, who was his lieutenant governor, who actually is a Democrat instead of a Republican, uh, and. Uh, got this sudden confession that uh, Barnes had in fact been sitting on for over 40 years that he had gone off um, with Con- with Governor Connolly to visit the Middle East uh, at the time when Reagan was running for president. And at each stop, he told the head of state he met with, the, with Sadat and many other senior people, uh, heads of state in the Middle East, uh, the the message he delivered was, you know, that he wanted the message delivered to Iran to please do not release the hostages that are in your control until after the election, and you will get a better deal from Ronald Reagan than you would from Jimmy Carter. And uh, that was the sum total of the message. Uh, It was delivered in at least, I guess, six different places in the Middle East. And um, I had never heard of this before. We didn't know about the Connolly trip, or I certainly didn't know about the Connolly trip. And I certainly didn't know anything about the uh, message that was being delivered. And uh, I obviously, among other things, wish that we had known this 40 years ago. First of all, it wouldn't have probably come in time to change the election, but it certainly would have come in time to... uh, pin down the people who were sending out that message and definitely accuse them of interfering with American foreign policy in the most unpleasant and unfortunate way. I mean, I have a lot of friends right here in in Manhattan who are uh, former hostages, and uh, some of them are really, you might anticipate, very upset with the idea that that uh, the Reagan campaign was sending out this message before the election, uh, as a result of which they presumably spent an extra three months or so in, in jail. And uh, if you, uh, you know, have not been a hostage, I think it's hard to appreciate what three months in jail in Tehran actually meant. Uh, and these people know what they're talking about, and they're unhappy about that. But uh, that's water under the bridge. There's nothing we can do about it now. But I think it's really important to illuminate this because this is not the only time in history when uh, people have interfered with the course of uh, political events abroad to try to ensure an election. Uh, Actually, it was done during the Nixon election when when the... Uh, the Mrs. Chenault uh, delivered a message to the South Vietnamese and said to them almost exactly the same thing. Do not make peace with the uh, uh, Johnson administration, which is LBJ, as it was then. Uh, But wait, and you will get a much better deal from Richard Nixon when he's elected. And they did, in fact, continue, and the war then continued on for a very long time uh, after Nixon became president. But this is now 
confirmed. I mean, we know this for an absolute fact that this was done. Uh, and there have been other cases, including one in which Connolly himself was involved in a different Nixon election where he went to the Shaw, and the Shaw was still the Shaw, and uh, asked him to uh, hold off on uh, oil nationalization uh, because uh, if he because it might interfere with the election of Richard Nixon. And supposedly, uh, from what we understand, he also uh, asked for the Shaw to make a contribution to the Nixon re-election campaign. So this, there's at least two other occasions in history uh, that we know of. And this one, I tried to write a book. Uh, I mean, I did write a book about this, interviewed hundreds of sources uh, over a period of more than a year. Um, and was able to put together a lot of, of evidence that it was very clear that lots of people believe there had been hanky-panky uh, with the election, but it was really hard to find any evidence. Uh, and hard evidence was uh, the so-called smoking gun was really difficult to come by. So this story in the New York Times on Sunday was not quite a smoking gun but it certainly, above, first of all, there's, Ben Barnes has absolutely no reason not to tell the truth about this. He hid the story for 43 years, but now he's decided that with Jimmy Carter um, aging and in hospice care, that he really owes it to him to tell the truth. Um, but what it does is absolutely remove any doubt whatsoever about the intent of the Reagan administration, I mean, the, the Reagan campaign. Uh, whatever else one might believe about what actually happened, what, whether they had a really hard and fast deal with the, with the Mullahs and whether there were arms that were exchanged in return, all of these things. The question, the, the point is, sure, we may not know the whole story, but we do know for sure now that, uh, that Casey, as the campaign chairman for Reagan re-election was in fact telling the Iranians in no uncertain terms that they should keep the hostages uh, until after the election and they would be rewarded. That that much we know for sure. And that is extremely important. It, it basically almost tells you everything that you need to know uh, about the uh, entire episode. But Gary Sick, this has to be very personal for you because you served on the National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter, and Reagan, and you were the principal White House aide for Iran during the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis. So when you talk about those diplomats who were held hostage who have become friends uh, in New York, you were on the other side trying to get them out. So That's exactly right. And this makes me think, my God, if only this story had come out earlier. I mean, yeah. obviously, we're talking about 43 years late in the midst of other you know, war in Ukraine and, you know, she right. meeting with Putin today, et cetera. Um, this yeah, is people an American a, tragedy, isn't it, that this, this yeah, stuff never is. comes it's, out? It's, uh, it is it is too bad. And the reality is that usually these things are done for short-term political benefit, and they work. I mean, in fact, uh, this did uh, achieve its purpose, uh, regardless of anything else that we know about this. It, it did what it was supposed to do. But that is, uh, but then you don't find out about it for half a century, and then it's old news. 
and it is also old hat. And uh, and the, so people say, well, gee, that's really bad. Uh, tut tut tut, uh, and then they turn the page. And you know, so having this, uh, you know, these stories, which have occurred at various times in, in recent history, um, accomplish their purpose. And so basically the people that are doing it are have every incentive to want to do that again. And I wish there were some way that we could make people go back and realize the gravity, the seriousness of this operation of keeping 52 Americans locked up in a foreign prison for the purposes of short-term political benefit of one party in this country is really, I mean, not only shameful, but it really comes very close to treasonous. And, you know, I do believe that it's a, that, that having, waiting, failing to get the story out for 50 years or 43 years does in fact make it more likely that it'll happen again because somebody will say, well, Nobody paid a high price for that. I mean, the people who were involved in it are all either dead or they're probably not going to get any, there's not going to be any serious punishment. Uh, there may be a footnote by their name uh, later on at, at some point. But basically, we need to make it so people don't want to do these things again. They do not want to to trick the world and the American and the American people into doing something illegal and um the, the, that's that's the the real tragedy of the whole thing is that chances are the story will simply pass by and people will shake their heads and, and say boy that was a lousy thing to do and then they'll but then they're busy thinking about lots of other things today and they just regard that as ancient history which is too bad well but what the historical record says is that on two occasions, back channels by Republicans, in the first case, Henry Kissinger and Madame Chen Kanchek, getting the South Vietnamese to walk out of the peace talks, uh, helped elect Nixon and hurt LBJ, and who subsequently resigned. And the October surprise that we're talking about, that was the front page story on Sunday's New York Times, was a similar incident where another back channel, this time using a Democrat, Governor Connolly, along with uh, Ben Barnes, going to the Middle East, getting the heads of state in the Middle East to pass on the message to the Iranians to hold on to the hostages to help elect Reagan and hurt Jimmy Carter. So that's two elections we're talking about of American presidents that are influenced by this kind of chicanery. In the first case, America was at war in Vietnam. So that makes it treason, or makes it much stronger case for treason, does it not? Yeah, it does. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I obviously I agree with you uh, that that it it does. But uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, there was. So let's assume that there was in fact treason done in Vietnam, and we can actually prove that it was done now. So who is treasonous, and who is being punished for it? Absolutely nobody. Uh, in other words. Nixon used the tricks to win election. He won his election, and uh, then he ruled, reigned, uh, you know, for eight years. And only now, you know, like 50 years later, are we actually learning the details of what happened 
but it's too late to do anything about it. And that's the part that bothers me that, uh, that in, in many of these cases, this is all done secretly. It's all done behind the scenes and nobody ever pays a price for it, which is, it, it's shameful and it's, but it also means that people are going to be tempted to do it again. If they have a similar set of circumstances, they can say, well, we've had two cases now where basically presidents have gotten themselves elected by manipulating this kind of information on foreign policy interest, and, uh, and they never paid a price for it. So uh, why not try it again? That bothers me. I think that, uh, that there's no cost associated with any of this. Well, just and in closing, I, Gary, though, this is the, the work of the Republican Party. Can you imagine what would have happened had the Democrats done something similar? And yeah, I can, I can tell you that uh, the, the idea of doing something like this uh, would never have occurred to Jimmy Carter. And, and also, he wouldn't ever have done such a thing, even if it had occurred to him. And, you know, maybe that's a weakness, you know, that, uh, that he was playing it straight. And if the opposition is not playing it straight, well, you pay a price for that. And uh, Jimmy Carter has paid the price. I'm glad that this story is coming out uh, while he is still alive and uh, in hospice care, but I'm sure he's following the, the news with great interest, as he always did. Thank you very much for joining us here today, Gary Sick. I appreciate it. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, as always. Thank you, and good night. Good night. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Sick, who served on the National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter, and Reagan. He was the principal White House aide for Iran during the Iranian Revolution and hostage crisis. He's a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Middle East Institute and the author of All Fall Down, America's Tragic Encounter with Iran and October Surprise, America's Hostages in Iran and the Election of Ronald Reagan. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.